The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Hello and welcome to another live edition of What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley. With me tonight is Father William Jenkins. He is a traditional Catholic priest. He's a member of the Society of St. Pius V. He is also the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church right here in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. How are you tonight? Very fine, Tom. Thanks. And how are you? Great, Father. Yeah, Great to be to here. You. Yes, yes. Father, uh, we have a lot to talk about tonight. There's a lot going on, but um, I guess first and foremost on everyone's mind has been the the uh, situation in Russia and Ukraine. Um, we've had a lot of people ask about that. There are a lot of uh, different theories going on um, about this uh, crisis over there. There have been a lot of questions that have been asked of us, Father. So um, if I could summarize some of these, um, perhaps the most prevailing yeah. question is, do you think Father, that this could possibly lead to World War III, the situation with Russia and Ukraine right now? Well, I, I think it could conceivably lead to World War III, but uh, um, I don't think it will. I think that prophecy indicates that it will set the stage for the arrival of a world figure who will uh, be the great pacifier and be hailed by the world. When I see these events unfolding now in the Ukraine, I, when I realize that there's a lot of political intrigue going on, and uh, we hear the reports uh, and the, the loud cries of outrage against Russia, and we hear others uh, saying it's not really Russia's fault or Putin's fault because he was pushed into this uh, in the interest of Russia because he felt he was being threatened by the advance of NATO and uh, and, and, and taking the Ukraine into its fold and so on. Um, and I don't think there are really any good guys here. We're trying to, to paint it as though the um, Vladimir Zelensky is somehow the white knight in shining armor. Well, there are those, I guess the rhinos, the Republicans name only, and the neocons, the neoconservatives and so on, uh, are, are trying to make it look like a black and white situation where uh, Putin is uh, like the devil himself in this. And uh, Zelensky is really the nice guy, comedian turned president, who uh, uh, being very courageous and all of this. But I don't think there really is a, a good guy in this. I think it's bad guys against each other. And um, th there are so many political forces involved right now, uh, push, trying to push America forward into this conflict. And as people have pointed out, I mean, there's been... Uh, complete insouciance about the um, the southern border of our own country, but we are uh, literally up in arms, or prepared to be up in arms over the integrity of the borders uh, the, of of, uh, of the Ukraine. And uh, the question is, why? And uh, the answers vary, you know. But um, in the midst of all this, I I think of the um, actually I think of a novel. I think of the novel written by Monsignor Robert Hugh Benson, which appeared in 1907. It was published in 1907, uh, the same year that uh, Pope Pius, St. Pius X's encyclical Pascendi, condemning the errors of the modernists, appeared. No connection between the two, I'm sure. But Monsignor Robert Hugh Benson in England published his novel, The Lord of the World. And in The Lord of the World, he portrays the world and the and the brink of war between East and West, the great confrontation between East and West, uh, threatening to plunge the whole world into this uh, enormous conflagration. Interesting that he would talk about world war before there was such a thing as world war. I mean, world war one, because it was the first, was just considered the great war. Um, <coughs> It was basically only World War uh, II that made World War I, World War I. Um, uh, 
But this was, uh, you know, seven years or so before uh, the Great War started involving great powers and their colonies, which engulfed the world. So, um, so his idea of saying the entire world was uh, at war between East and West, and they were going to have this mighty cataclysm. And then some, some relatively obscure personage comes out of, uh, out of the shadows and begins to travel the world pleading for peace and travel, the traveling to, as a diplomat to all of the capitals of the world. And uh, he actually brings peace to mankind. So, in other words, the whole world hails him as a savior. It's the Antichrist. In the, in the book, uh, The Lord of the World, um, you know, um, his name is Felsenberg, Julian Felsenberg, Julian Felsenberg. So um, it's an interesting novel, certainly worth reading today. One might even consider it perhaps prophetic. But um, in any case, um, I can't help but think that we're witnessing a great theater. But theater driven by those political forces that actually not only do not shrink from the deaths of thousands and thousands of people. You, you, you see what's happening in the Ukraine right now. And of course, your heart goes out to those poor people because they're suffering and terribly. But there are political forces and political figures in the world uh, who simply see them as collateral damage, uh, that they're simply uh, ciphers in, a, in, a, in a, a war that they're fighting uh, in their own interests, or to drive force an ideology or an agenda. And so, I mean, people might say, well, no one would think like that, would they? Well, there are people who flew uh, airplanes full of jet fuel into uh, towers, uh, business towers in New York. Of course there are people who think like that. They think nothing of these lives. In fact, they would say, the lives of these people exist only to serve my purpose my ideology, so I can, I can use them as a means of achieving my end. Now, yeah, there are plenty of people. The entirety of human history seems to be written in blood by people who think like that. And there are very wealthy and very powerful people in the world right now who would think it was a price well paid by millions of other people to die for their, for their cause. <laughs> um, uh, Mao Zedong boasted 20 million people have died for the glory of communism. In China, it was probably two or three times that many. Certainly, um, you know, more than that died in Russia, in Stalin's camps and so on, Persia's and so on. Uh, they think nothing of uh, devastating uh, the lives of uh, individuals. They, you know, Stalin himself said, you know, one, one uh, you know, and just death is a, uh, is a tragedy, a million deaths is a statistics. <laughs> you know, that's how they think. So I, I can't help but think that what's going on in the, in the Ukraine is being orchestrated by now, right now, by um, <clears throat> those who are going to use it to their own political ends. How they can use it? Well, there are people who are speculating now how the globalists are going to use this to their political ends. Turning it into another Vietnam, the United States of America, who knows? Um, bringing the world to the brink of war, who knows, right? Uh, who knows what propaganda value it has and will be used for. But uh, anyway, my, my concern immediately, of course, is to pray for the people who are suffering because of it. And to make sure that uh, if uh, there are those in power who are uh, using these events to serve their own nefarious purposes that God prevent them from succeeding. Mm -hmm. Father, do you think that this could um, perhaps be diversionary at all? Because we see now every media outlet in America is, I mean, this seems to be this, this Russia, well, Russia-Ukrainian conflict is, is all that they talk about. Even local news outlets are talking about this. Well, the, and, media, the media outlets are owned by the same corporations. So essentially, they're the same uh, minds and voices that control them. Uh, for example, with regard to the January 6th so-called insurrection, right? 
they were following a script. I mean, no matter what channel you were listening to, no matter no, what news broadcast, what news broadcaster you were listening to, they all were saying the same words, exactly, repeating the same things. This is against our democracy. This is dangerous for our democracy. Over and over again, we heard this. You know, it, no matter where you turned, this is what the message that came through. And it's because the, the message was all coming from the same source. Uh, they were all just parroting the same line. Uh, but it, what came across the, uh, you know, their, their, their ticker tapes, whatever, whatever came across their, their news wires, uh, the script was written for them. Uh, so we shouldn't be surprised. Um, in fact, as you say, Tom, it, since it is so uniform, it makes you wonder uh, who's really pushing this and why are they pushing it. Mm. And you've made this point, I think, last in one of our previous programs, Father, but um, you know, there are so many other issues that are more pertinent that hit closer to home um, for us here in America. I mean, even just north of us in Canada, we have everything that is happening there that... Um, mm -hmm is is uh so terrible but even within our own country at our southern border and everything all of the terrible issues and problems that we have here in the united states of america um do you think that that this all of this talk about russia and ukraine could somehow trying to be divert us diverting us away from all of these issues here at home that really affect us much more deeply than anything that happens in europe and asia and half a world away well that's a very good point and i think you can basically uh, take it for granted that no matter what happens, it is going to, it serves the purpose of diversion. I mean, they may have, when I say they, I mean the globalists um, who are pushing the propaganda through the news organizations uh, may have three or four different goals to accomplish with this, but you can be very sure that one of them is diversion. I mean, I mentioned this a few programs ago that I was concerned that. Uh, if, uh, you know, with the resident Biden and his situation here in America and the popularity fake going down and down and down, the approval ratings going down and down and um, and so on. And his uh, even his cognitive powers decreasing before our very eyes. By the way, he has a State of the Union address uh, tonight. Uh, and I'd be curious as to see what happens there. But. Um, but with that situation going on here, and I was thinking Xi Jinping over there in China, he supposedly was in trouble at one point with various massive uh, failures affecting the economy. I voiced the concern that one thing that uh, uh, such people do when they get into political problems is they look to start a war uh, to divert from the political problems. And... Um, I mean, there's, there's so many problems that are actually not um, not only, you know, evading solution because of Biden's impotency, but there's so many problems facing America because of Biden and the Democrats' policies that uh, this, is, this is prime time for them to, to have a diversion, start a fire somewhere as a diversion. Well, you know, this is what robbers do when they, they start a fire somewhere to go rob a bank. They draw, you know, the police and the fire away. Um, and so, yes, I'm sure that you're absolutely right about that. This is a diversionary tactic. I just wonder what else they're up to now. And it's a good thing you mentioned that because we must not allow ourselves to be diverted by this. Uh, again, you know, reasonable people sit back uh, after all, with all of the hysteria and all the chants and all of the, uh, the hoopla and ask, well, okay, I mean, it's not good that, uh, that Putin, Putin would invade Zelensky, <laughs> you know, that Russia would invade Ukraine. That, that can't be good. Um, but after all, is the border of Ukraine that significant to me that I should ignore the fact that my own southern border under my own country is basically evaporating and we're being invaded by millions of uh, people who are coming in. The Democrats hope will vote Democrat. Um, so, um, yeah, it, it, it certainly is a diversion mm -hmm. from these other issues and we must not let our minds be taken off these other pressing matters. Mm -hmm. 
Father, there are some who are uh, thinking in kind of a apocalyptical mindset with this situation, and um, there's been some talk of um, some way somehow that this situation with Russia could somehow be related to the consecration of Russia to our Blessed Mother's Immaculate Heart that she requested at, at Fatima. Um, I even heard one person today say that we need to get through to, to Pope Francis somehow and remind him of the necessity of this consecration to Russia and how that would somehow uh, solve this crisis. And do you see any connection, Father, between what's going on now in Russia and the consecration of Russia to the Immaculate Heart? Well, I, I see virtually everything happening right now in relation to the failure to consecrate Russia to the Immaculate Heart of Mary as our Lord and our Blessed Mother asked. Now, at Fatima in 1917, in July, Our Lady instructed the children that Russia must be, uh, must be consecrated to her Immaculate Heart. The Holy Father must do that. She mentioned um, Pius XI. Um, of course, the children were bound to secrecy at that time. Um, but it, it was, in fact, in 1929, well, in 1927, uh, actually, Our, Our Lady released, um, released Lucia to make this known, and in 1929 instructed her to tell Pope Pius XI that now is the time. But there, Our Lady added, uh, not only the Holy, the Holy Father would have to con uh, consecrate Russia to the Immaculate Heart, but he would have to do so in union with all the bishops of the world. That was not in the original instruction in Fatima in 1917. Uh, one might ask, well, why did Our Lady add that? And uh, there are a number of possible reasons why, and I think all of them good. But the fact is, it's clear that Our Lady did add that provision. It must be the Holy Father together with all the bishops, Catholic bishops of the world. And Pope Pius XI did not make that consecration. He was under enormous pressure not to do so. And that's another interesting story about the pressures that were brought to bear on him. And uh, the, perhaps the obstacles even that he ran into in his efforts to, to, to make that consecration with all the bishops of the world. At that time, many of them were already modernists. And um, so anyway, Pope Pius XI did not, in fact, uh, he lived another 10 years. During those 10 years, he, he wrote a masterful encyclical against Nazism, right, with Zorge, to the bishops of Germany, to all the Catholic people of Germany. And uh, he wrote a very powerful letter condemning atheistic communism, Bolshevism in Russia, Divina uh, Redentoris, and both in the year 1937. But in two years, he was dead. Pius XI. He had not consecrated Russia to the Immaculate Heart, certainly not with the bishops of the world. And uh, in fact, it wasn't until 1952, after World War II had come and gone, the Great War, worse than the first that Our Lady had predicted, uh, that in fact Pope Pius XII did issue an apostolic uh, epistle, apostolic letter. It's in the Octa Apostolice Sedis, it's an official communication of the Holy See promulgated by the Holy See, an apostolic letter specifically and uniquely addressed to the peoples of Russia and consecrating Russia to the Immaculate Heart of Mary in the most special way. And uh, the Pope said he hoped that this would bring peace. But again, it was an act of his own. It was a, like a, well, it wasn't actually a motu proprio, but it was essentially a personal act of, of the Pope doing that, consecrating Russia to the Immaculate Heart. It did not unite the bishops of the world in that action with him. <laughs> and so uh, there are those who still say, well, what Our Lady requested in 1929 was never, was never actually accomplished. And they're right. It wasn't. So one might say, yes, I mean, uh, Vladimir Putin uh, leading uh, Russia and attacking the Ukraine uh, is the result of a failure to make that act of consecration. But you can say that about all of the evils we're facing right now. As Our Lady told us that if uh, that act of consecration were made, that uh, the history of the world would be quite different. She said if it was not made, 
She predicted wars, famines, diseases, right? Uh, and all kinds of terrible things would strike the earth. And we're seeing them all now. Father, we uh, received an email with an interesting hypothetical question that I wanted to pose to you where one of our viewers asked if the conversion of Russia were to actually take place now and the schismatic Orthodox were to, uh, were, were to convert uh, to true Christianity, traditional Roman Catholicism, how would they go about being reconciled with the church if they are excommunicated now? Um, it seems we don't have a, a valid pope to lift that excommunication. So practically speaking, how would any kind of conversion in Russia take place? Well, we have a, a basically a pope of the new order who basically discourages conversions. Yeah. Uh, he doesn't want the conversion. So, I mean, how would you even pray for that? How would you even expect him to make that a consecration? I mean, even if, even if he you know, were a, a valid pope. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I want to mention the point that um, although, you know, we have our own personal convictions on that point, and rightly so, uh, that none of us has the authority to decide that for everybody in the world, obviously. So we have to, we have to be careful not to uh, pretend that we have the authority to pronounce on that subject. Uh, for all the souls in the world, we don't. <clears throat> but the fact is that um, um, how would you expect someone who thinks like Francis does, who believes that God wills all the religions of the world, positively, he wants all of these different religions. How would you even expect such a man to take an action for the sake of conversion of, uh, let's say, the Russian Orthodox to back into union with the Catholic Church, and how could he even do that? He doesn't even believe in that. He doesn't even believe in the papacy, for that matter, uh, as we know from what he said about the papacy himself. He doesn't believe in it. So, uh, yeah, this is an issue. Of, obviously, this is a very serious, serious issue. There are those who actually thought that the time for the fulfillment of Our Lady's request that a true Roman pontiff in union with all the bishops of the world consecrate Russia to her immaculate heart, there are those who, who believe that that time has passed. In fact, not long after, uh, Pope Pius XII did speak on the subject and consecrated the world to the immaculate heart of Mary. This is in the midst of World War II. Too. This, is, this is at the end of the year 1942, as the entire world was engulfed in, uh, in, in slaughter. But Pius XII uh, actually joined by radio the bishops of Portugal in praying. It's the 25th anniversary of Our Lady's appearance, 1917 to 1942. And he made that, that consecration of the world to the Immaculate Heart in the course of making that act of consecration, he did mention Russia, not by name, but he obliquely referred to those people so devoted to Mary, uh, where her icon, interesting choice of word, is actually hidden away now to await better days. That's what he said. Was, everyone knew he was talking about Russia, Stalinist Russia. Um, and the icon of our Blessed Mother holding the child Jesus hidden away because of communism. Everyone knew that. Um, and uh, Pope Pius XII uh, prayed that in October uh, by radio with all of the Catholic bishops of Portugal. This is 1942. And he repeated that act of consecration. I believe it was December 8th, the Feast of the Immaculate Conception. He repeated it. And uh, after that, uh, Lucia spoke. She said she was, I think she said she was instructed by our Lord, even, to speak uh, and to say that the act of consecration made by Pope Pius XII was pleasing to our Lord and Our Lady, but it was not what was requested. And so it was not really the fulfillment of what, what was uh, the request of heaven that he do. But because of that, because he did that much, the days of the war would be shortened. And curiously enough, I mean, the war uh, for us began on a feast day of Our Lady and ended on a feast day of Our Lady, right? 
in the European theater and in the uh, Pacific theater. I mean, we, we entered the war on December 8th. We finished the war on October, August 15th. Uh, curious. Uh, the Feast of the Immaculate Conception, the Feast of the Assumption of Our Lady. So, um, in a sense, these two feast days frame Our Lady's whole life. I mean, her Immaculate Conception and her Assumption. So, um, we, we have to see um, the events that are unfolding before us now as due to the, the failure, really, to make that consecration as heaven asked for it. Um, the question, of course, always comes up is, why was that consecration not made? And I, I think we can readily agree that the powers of hell were massed against that consecration, uh, that they realized that their entire enterprise was at stake here, and they had to go for broke to prevent it. And they were using churchmen, such as uh, Montini, who became Paul VI. Uh, they were using churchmen such as uh, uh, Roncalli, John XXIII, while they were in their positions of authority within the church or power to do everything they could, uh, kind of hell-bent on preventing that consecration from being made. Um, so anyway, there are a lot of theories. I have theories of my own, uh, but I will tell you those now. As the wife of Pius XI did not make the consecration, as Our Lady asked, with the, with the bishops of the world united with him. Uh, but we're living the consequences of the failure to make that consecration. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And uh, we, um, we certainly cannot expect Francis and the, those bishops of the new order that he's allied with, we can't expect them to do that. Right. Um, not at all. Um, quite the contrary, I think they're on the other side right. of this issue. So. Right. Um, by the way, one of those who thought that the time had passed for this was Malachi Martin, whose name uh, many of our uh, listeners probably know of. Uh, in his book, uh, The Keys of This Blood, he writes about this, pages 635, 678. He talks about this, how he perceives this as kind of a great wheel that turns, and he he seems to think that once the prophecies um, that Our Lady gave at Fatima of the things that would happen if the consecration were not made, once those prophecies were fulfilled, then the time to make the consecration had elapsed. <clears throat> now, Lucia, in her own right, in nine, early in 1943, when she was making statements about what Pius XII had done. She said, actually, now it remains for each and every one of us Catholics, every family, every diocese, every nation, she said, to consecrate itself to the Immaculate Heart of Mary. Now, if someone's attentively listening to this, reading this, in fact, it's in the book that we've um, republished, right? Um... Our Lady's words of Fatima, in actually Lucia's own words, um, if someone's paying attention to that, they actually could pick up on that. Okay, at Fatima in 1917, Our Lady said, the Holy Father must consecrate Russian to the back in heart. In 1929, the instruction was given to tell Pope Pius Eleventh to consecrate Russia to the back in heart in union with all of the bishops of the world. And then in 1943, Lucia says, now what must be done is that we must all consecrate ourselves to the Immaculate Heart of Mary. And one might see that was, that was part of the progression there. Uh, to, what, what this means is that we have to be doing everything we can to convince everyone we can to consecrate himself or herself to the Immaculate Heart. Sincerely, it's like our mission right now. How does one go about doing that, Father? Well, they have to, first of all, have a, a certain love for our Blessed Mother, don't they? So, um, primarily, we've got to address Catholics. Let's face it, I mean, through the children at Fatima, Our Lady was really addressing the Catholic people of the world. She was addressing the Catholic people 
She was addressing the Catholic clergy. She was addressing the Catholic hierarchy. Uh, Our Lady wasn't really speaking to the world through these three little children. She was really addressing a message to those who believe in her son uh, and love him and hopefully know her as his mother and their mother and love her. And so it was like a mother addressing her children. And that refers to the Catholic people um, in a unique way. So uh, we have to talk to the Catholic people where there's any vestige of love for Our Lady. We have to appeal to that. Any vestige of love for Our Lord. We have to appeal to that. And uh, just urge people to make that act of consecration and keep it. The message of Fatima uh, is every bit as important now as it was then, perhaps more important than ever before. And that's the message. Our Lady said people must consecrate themselves to her Immaculate Heart. And Fatima in 1917, she said that. And uh, to stop offending her Immaculate Heart, you know, people wonder, well, why would Mary be concerned about offenses to her? She should be more concerned about offenses to our Lord. But I think what Our Lady is actually telling us there is the blasphemies that they're giving against her are against her divine motherhood, and they really are directed to our Lord and against our Lord, and she knows that. She knows that the attacks on her are motivated by a certain malice toward her son, Jesus. She says those must be stopped. They, they offend God very much. In fact, we see our Lord being very patient with our blasphemies and sacrileges against him. But like any good son, he is very, very offended by those who attack his mother. He loves with a very, very particular and very unique love. Uh, we have to respect that. He demands that we respect that. Right. <laughs> so we have to promote the devotion to Our Lady's Immaculate Heart and uh, the consecration to Our Immaculate Heart. It's a very, very important part of the message of Fatima. Yep. Well, Father, uh, you mentioned Francis earlier. Um, he made some headlines about uh, going to see the Russian ambassador, <laughs> mm. I guess in person, actually going to see him in person, um, ostensibly <laughs> asking for, for peace. Um, but I, I wanted to read an email that we received uh, to that effect and um, asking about Francis and his action there. So this viewer wrote in and said that they actually heard this from a friend and they wanted to see how you would respond to this, Father. But this friend said to our viewer, uh, the more I think about what Pope Francis did this morning, the more profound it becomes. I think that in choosing to go to the Russian ambassador to plead for peace, the Holy Father is not merely breaking traditional diplomatic protocol, to show the seriousness of the situation. He could have pleaded for peace inside the walls of the Vatican, but I think that his choice clearly shows that he is approaching this not as the head of the Vatican State, but as the Vicar of Christ. He is being a good shepherd. A head of state receives ambassadors, but a pastor goes out to the lost sheep. So Pope Francis is doing what he has asked us Christians to do many times. He is going to the periphery as a missionary disciple to preach God's message of peace and love, mirroring the good shepherd who leaves his flock to seek out the one lost sheep. May we all heed his message and pray for the conversion of Vladimir Putin's heart alongside our prayers for peace in Ukraine. How would you respond to someone who said that, Father? <clears throat> well, I think they're interpreting it in a very particular way, um, which I, I don't agree with. I mean, do I wish it was, I could agree with it? Of course, I wish that I could agree with that, honestly. <clears throat> but again, I, just, I think it's one of those gestures, you know, that, Francis makes these gestures that, uh, in the end, really just don't help, you know. In other words, Francis has traveled the world. He's gone everywhere, right? I mean, he's traveled everywhere. Um, I, I don't know if he set foot on Antarctica or the Arctic. I don't know yet, but I mean, why simply take a trip over to the Russian embassy, I guess, in, in, in Rome. That's what he did. Uh, if that is, if, that, if it really were a matter of that, I don't think it's a matter of addressing yourself to the Russian ambassador. I think it's a matter of getting on a plane and flying to Moscow to sit down with Vladimir Putin himself. If we're really serious about this, if he really thought as a head of state, I should be talking to a head of state, as the head of the church, I should be talking to the man who's giving the orders. By going and talking to the Russian ambassador, 
What is that going to accomplish? The ambassador is going to say, uh, Vladimir, uh, Francis came to see me today and he really wants us to stop this invasion. Uh, I mean, I just can't see any, anything be accomplished by that except mere, uh, like a gesture. Uh, if there was some serious effort behind this, I mean, I would think that, uh, if, especially if one, one saw the danger involved here, right? <laughs> Uh, the dangers to the whole world. <clears throat> I'm sorry, but I, I, I just can't see anybody doing anything less than uh, a real pope appealing directly to Vladimir Putin. Mm -hmm. And actually, but, but, you know, Vladimir Putin has no regard for Francis whatsoever. He doesn't even think he's a Christian. He said so. Wouldn't even take his call. <laughs> he just doesn't put, really have any regard or any respect for, for Francis. Uh, he's made that very clear. And, um, but he, he might, it actually might actually raise the estimation of Francis in the eyes of Vladimir Putin. If Francis appeared at his doorstep in the Kremlin, knocking out the door saying, hey, I, I really have to talk to you, you know, and I'm coming here not as, uh, you know, the, the head of the Vatican city state, I'm coming here on behalf of Christendom, and you, you claim that you are one, so, I mean, we have to sit down and talk to this. In a way, Vladimir Putin would somehow be the political descendant, in a very strange way, I realize that, of the, the Roman emperors going back to Constantine, who moved the capital city eastward from Rome, as you know. And, um, you know, the Russian Orthodox Church, you know, was actually year, so many years ago, centuries ago, subject to Constantinople, right? And um, anyway, it's a long story. But, um, you know, I, I, if, if he really wanted to impress somebody, you'd think that's what he would do. Mm -hmm. And not just, um, you know, head over to the, well, I'm assuming I didn't read the report, so I, I, I must admit it's an assumption that he talked to the uh, Russian ambassador. And the key is uh, that this writer is writing this, he didn't summon the ambassador uh, to, to come to him, that he went to him. Yeah. And, uh, well, I mean, that's, I, I don't know what else to say. I mean, it's nice, but I, I just don't think it amounts to the level of what this writer is saying. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's sort of this, this great gesture of a vicar of Christ appealing uh, for peace. Uh, I think this is like totally inadequate and basically approaches the level again of theater. Mm -hmm. Father, can we honestly expect uh, Francis to actually be pleading for peace? I mean, it seems that he's shown himself time and time again just to be a through and through leftist. And we know that leftism is all about war. Um, well, he might actually be very much against the invasion of Ukraine, yeah. because the Ukraine has, has actually taken the side of the LGBTQ. Yeah. Uh, it, it's actually very much along the lines of thinking of our societies in the West, uh, open to all kinds of things, you know, that immoral things. And Putin has come out against all that stuff, you know. So in that sense, uh, maybe... Uh, maybe Francis would say, gee, Ukraine is much more according to my liking and my political um, uh, positions and social positions than Russia is under Putin. Yeah. So I really do think that Francis probably would be genuinely <clears throat> against uh, the, uh, the attack on the Ukraine. Yeah. I think, I think you know, the social and political alignment of the Ukraine is more in line with with Francis's thinking. Mm -hmm. Okay. Just suspect that. Yeah. Well, Father, I wanted to read another email that we got um, along the... By the way, it's interesting yeah. to see who is, who is most adamant against this, who is most adamantly coming to the defense or to the calling for the defense of the Ukraine. George Soros. And uh, a number of other very, very prominent world leftists are demanding that uh, the West come and to defend the Ukraine with everything they've got. Mm -hmm. And uh, that 
is really causing conservatives in the United States of America to pause and wonder, you know, what's really going on here? Yeah. Why would a George Soros be so determined that we not let anything happen to the Ukraine, not, not let Russia invade the Ukraine? Does Soros have investments there he's trying to protect? I mean, we can understand why a Joe Biden would be, because uh, Ukraine has been like a, a, a cash cow for him and his family. You know, I mean, hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars have come from the Ukraine into the coffers of the Biden family. And uh, it's under understandable why he would rise to the, the defense you know, of the Ukraine. Although, uh, you know, writers like Pat Buchanan and others have pointed out that Putin was actually backed into a corner over it by our own policies. And uh, that this never would have happened if Trump were president right now. Uh, the two-thirds of the United States of America surveys show believe that Russia would never have attacked Ukraine if Trump had been president and not Biden. Uh, but that Biden's very policies had actually, as it were, unlocked the door and then opened it for Putin to march, march right through. And you can see the arguments have a lot of weight <clears throat> that this was set up by the policies of Biden and his Democrats. <clears throat> Almost uh, double-dog daring Putin to do something, you know. Um, I mean, let's face it, Putin um, does care about Russia, cares about his own power and cares about the power of Russia. And he sees uh, Ukraine being courted by NATO and it's on his very doorstep, right? And uh, this is not something that he would favor. We know that. We understand that. We understand why. The story is that Putin wants uh, a neutral, at least neutral Ukraine. Is that something that it would be reasonable for him to, to want for, to wish for? Yes. Of course, it's on his borders, right? So, um, but I mean, the, 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 the pushing and the pushing and the pushing politically, possibly economically, um, uh, as, as Buchanan points out, Pat Buchanan points out, uh, Putin is a man of his word. If he says he's going to do something, you can reasonably expect he's going to do it. If you keep daring him to do it, he will act. And he's doing that now. Of course, the press has all leaped to vilify him over this and to somehow paint the Ukraine as the innocent victim of it all. But actually, I, I do fear that's the policy of the West, notably the United States of America, that has really precipitated this. And the people of the U Ukraine are suffering because of our policies here, that what we precipitated over there. But uh, in any case, is it part of prophecy? Yes. Um, it's not going to end well, except um, with the triumph of our Lord. In the meantime, there's going to be a lot of suffering. Of course. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, Father, if we could perhaps spend uh, the few last minutes of the show on a more spiritual topic. I know mm -hmm. many of our viewers would uh, like to hear a few words of encouragement for the Lenten season that is um, upon us beginning tomorrow with Ash Wednesday. Um, Father, how can we have a, a very productive and meritorious Lent this year? Well, I, I would wish all of our viewers the most productive Lent of their entire lives. Right? <clears throat> I mean, we look at the, um, the Gospels of Septuagesima, Sexagesima, Quinquagesima. We look at the Epistles during these three Sundays that lead up to this Ash Wednesday tomorrow. And we see what they tell us, and of course St. Paul starts out uh, in Septuagesima Sunday by telling us that we have to run that we have to fight. Well, this is what he's saying. He's running and he's fighting. He's running the race and he's fighting a race. He's fighting the fight. And he's not uh, contending, by the way, the, the Greek word uh, uh, for agony. Ag we get the word agony. It actually meant this striving or this fighting, this competition. But he says it's not a competition against um, other people. It's a competition against myself and my weakness and my, the old man within me. I have to overcome that weakness in myself. That is what I'm fighting against. He said, I'm not fighting for a corruptible crown like laurel wreaths that, you know, what's that? Um, but he's fighting for an incorruptible crown, a crown that only God can give and that will not disintegrate like the things of the earth. 
so he says, this is, what, this is the prize, you know. And then uh, we talk about the laborers, and the laborers invited into the field, and they labor. <clears throat> but they all receive the same prize, which the fathers tell us in this case, is going to be everlasting life. So uh, this takes away any excuse someone might have, saying, well, you know, all of this effort that St. Paul makes about running and fighting and striving and so on, um, I, I can't do that after all. I've spent most of my life. I haven't really uh, accomplished much. I haven't done much running and I haven't been, done much fighting spiritually. And so it's too late for me. And there our Lord gives the gospel of the 11th hour workers who are called in and still receive the prize of eternal life. This takes away any excuses people might have saying it's too late. You know, I'm, I can't do this. Uh, enter into this struggle. So for Lent, I'd say, you know, even if we spent years and years, Lent after Lent has gone by, and we've been very lax about it, there's no excuse for saying, well, there's no hope. I, I might as well just be as lax as I've ever been. No, our Lord tells us that even the 11th hour workers uh, receive a great reward. <clears throat> uh, so um, it's almost he's rewarding their trust in him to say, okay, even though it's late, I know God still wants this of me and I will give it. Um, and of course, you know, we, we look at the Gospels and the epistles of the other Sundays. I mean, we, we see the sower going out to sow his seed. And uh, we see the seed is the faith, the word of God, and it's meant to fall into a soil where it can grow and thrive and produce something. And this is, again, something that our Lord wants us to do during this Lenten time. He wants us to think in terms of what we can produce. Um, you know, the, the efforts we make in fighting and running are one thing, but the good soil is something that is productive, and it starts by accepting faith. And the faith can germinate and take root in the soul and grow. And if it grows, the stalk, you might say, the roots might symbolize faith, the word of God taking root in the soul. But then also the stalk growing as hope and the fruit, uh, whatever it is, you know, our Lord talks about fig trees, he talks about uh, wheat, right? Talks about mustard seed, whatever the fruit uh, comes from it, uh, our Lord wants some produce, he wants some something we can do for him, something we can produce for him. He's invested his word in us, and he wants it to take root and grow and be protective of something beautiful. And um, again, there are many different kinds of soil. Our Lord talks about four of them, the fourth being the good soil. But we find that in those four categories of soil, the wayside and the rock and the overgrown, the soil overgrown with thorns and thistles and so on, and then the good soil. Each one of us finds himself somewhere in there. You know, we fit into that category, that, that scheme somewhere. It's important for us to know what that is. But the, again, um, just as our Lord, um, you know, gives us the words about, um, about the, the workers, so then we find the gospel about the produce, the soil that produces something for him. And of course, um, then we see the great epistle of St. Paul about charity, talk about something being productive. This is what actually must be the blossom, as it were, or the, the flower of faith. You know, when, the, when the roots grow and the stalk grows, and then finally the flower blossoms, that's the charity there. And uh, so throughout Lent, uh, the, day, the Sunday's running up to Lent, Septuagesima, Sexagesima, and Quicagesima, we have kind of a theme carrying us forward so that <clears throat> when Lent begins, as it does tomorrow, we actually have our mind fixed on the message of the church, and that is, apply yourself. Apply yourself. Wake up. Don't be lazy. Get to work. Produce something for God. No excuses, and uh, because God will give the grace, and he has something that he wants you to accomplish for him. It's your job to, uh, to be receptive to his grace, take it in, let it grow and blossom in you, and actually produce something beautiful and uh, holy for, for God, and to begin with, in your own, in your own soul. So, uh, in any case, that's what Lent is all about, right? 
I, I suggest to people that they pray the epistle of Quinquagesima Sunday, which is uh, uh, taken from St. Paul's first epistle to Corinthians, chapter 13. The entire chapter 13 is only 13 verses, actually. And uh, I'm sure our readers recognize it right from the start. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, I have become, I have become as a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal, right? And so on, our students have to memorize that First um, Corinthians chapter 13 before they can graduate. And I was gratified to learn that there are students who still remembered it 20, 25 years later. But I, I encourage people to um, keep that handy and read it every day. Because there you have a, a brief synopsis of the entire moral life of Catholics. You know, the, the, basically the entire... The entirety of moral theology of, of the Catholic Church is kind of encapsulated in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And um, so I, I recommend that the Catholic people keep a copy of it handy. Uh, not just read it, pray it every day. It only takes a couple minutes at most. And um, if they do that, they'll begin to, well, hopefully learn it. And finally, by the end of Lent, they'll learn it by heart. They will actually know it by heart. And then, then the hard part begins. And not just um, knowing it by heart, but, but taking it to heart and practicing it by heart. Okay? That's the actual application. That's the actual fruit that our Lord wants produced by the season of Lent. So I hope that there are some out there who will be able to, and being able to will actually do that. Okay. Well, Father, thanks for being here tonight. Thanks for all of your insight and everything that you do. And I oh, wish you yeah, a very, well, very blessed certainly. Lenten season. Well, we have to continue praying, obviously, right? Pray the Rosary, our Blessed Mother. I let you say that again. But in particular, I ask for prayers for Canada, people of Canada, who are still suffering. Um, and uh, also pray for the people of the Ukraine who are suffering much right now as part of this uh, program that they didn't choose for themselves but is being imposed upon them. Um, pray for the United States of America. Of course, our own people need to pray for our country very lovingly and insistently. I've asked our Catholic Men for Christ the King to pray every day, not only the Rosary, but also a novena each day, nine Our Fathers, and also nine times the prayer to St. Michael the Archangel. And the prayer to St. Michael the Archangel and the Our Father uh, is specifically prayed begging God's mercy for our country and our people, the United States of America. And I recommend that practice to all of our listeners, too, to do that. Um, but baseline is the rosary. Absolutely, start with praying the rosary and praying it well. Um, that was one of our ladies' insistent requests at Fatima, and you'll find that it really does produce something beautiful for God. So the souls of the, who are devoted, those who are devoted to our ladies' rosary. Yeah. Thank you, Father. You're welcome. Down. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks to all of our viewers as well for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady at Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary, and to pray and do penance. Thank you, and God bless you.